more effort to order a pizza than it does to have a child. Bullshit. Bullshit. guest of the evening coming on uh steve hofstetter steve how's it going uh it's going all right how are you guys doing we're doing pretty good uh you doing were just saying that you're driving through the desert you didn't want it to be too cold it's getting cold where we are very cold mm-hmm. i woke up with the heat on this morning and was freezing it was <laughs> bizarre good old spokane washington mm-hmm. but thanks for joining us thanks for yeah taking time. yeah my pleasure it's uh you know, with all the climate change, it's actually kind of good sometimes that, you know, Spokane hasn't become a desert yet. So, <laughs> At least there's still cold to be rolling in, right? Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, don't worry. You guys will be, you guys will be coastline soon enough. Yeah, just a couple more years, maybe three or four, and then we'll, uh, we'll have a nice beachfront apartment property. That's, that's yeah, what we're exactly. holding out for. That's why we bought, we got a lot of property up here. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for that beachfront. We're waiting for the valley to skyrocket. Um, so, big comedian, how did you get your start in uh, in comedy? Um, you know, no other marketable job skills. Uh, I <laughs> I really like. I started doing improv when I was thirteen. Um, there was, you know. There was a cute girl who told me that I should join the improv group. And I was like, uh, yeah, I have no spine. I'll do whatever you say. And it, you know, turned out that I enjoyed it. Uh, she quit two weeks later. I was already hooked. It was the first time <laughs> I was getting positive attention for anything in my life. And I've just been kind of doing comedy in one form or another ever since. Has, uh, you, you mentioned that improv was kind of the start of it. I know you're, you've mostly been doing stand-up over these years, but do you still get back to improv at any of those points? Uh, every now and then. I mean, I do a lot of ad-lib in my act. So, gotcha. you know, that kind of flexes, flexes a similar muscle. Um, mm. I, every now and then I will also, you know, kind of be a guest with an improv troupe, mm. but I hate improv for the most part. <laughs> um, really good improv. There's, there's, few things that are better but that's so rare so much of improv is just a bunch of people doing a bunch of private jokes and not understanding scene structure Mm. and you know i i call it uh instead of yes and it's no but 
and it's it's to the point where actually when I do college shows, it's in my contract that uh, they cannot have their improv group go uh, go on before me because I've had so many garbage experiences where I've had to stand at the back of the room, like preventing people from leaving, and be like, guys, it's ten minutes, just ten more minutes, guys, come on, please. <laughs> I promise when I get up there, it's going to be not private jokes. It's going to be a lot funnier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, this will this all end soon. Don't worry. We're in this together. Purple hearts for everybody. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. Kind of going off of the, the improv, you said you go a little ad-lib in your shows. I mean, whenever you look up Steve Hofstetter on YouTube, you get a lot of your clapbacks. Um, you get a lot of um, different hecklers in the crowd. How do you typically deal with them since you kind of have to ad-lib back at them? Um, you know, for, for that, you, first of all, you do what you can to give them enough rope to hang themselves. Um, the more <laughs> okay. you let them talk, the more you let them, if they're dumb enough to heckle, they're dumb enough to say something you can make fun of when they talk. Mm -hmm. So there's also the philosophy of, you know, if someone's coming at you trying to take a swing, the most effective thing is not to swing back, it's to step aside and let their weight carry them down. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's kind of uh, a similar idea. So you, uh, you know, you, it's not even flat backs as much as it's, you know, just let them dig their own grave. No, for, for, for sure. Um, uh, listening to some of your standups, um, you know, politics have been kind of a big part of a lot of your acts. And it really has seemed to be a big part of, comedy for a long time what do you kind of think that relationship is not only from your perspective just but between comedy and politics in general yeah it's always so funny to me when people tell me that i'll never make it because i'm a political comic and i'm like all right i'll tell that to george carlin and richard Pryor, you dummy <laughs> um the you know if you look at the 100 top stand-ups of all time probably 80 of them are political comics mm -hmm. um it is the relationship is there because you know Bill Hicks said it really well when he said the comic is the one who says wait a minute as the consensus forms. It's our job to point out that the emperor has no clothes. Mm -hmm. Our job is to be counterculture. That's what humor is, and so that's what we do. I mean, I love that. As long as you're, <laughs> if you're getting that stuff out there, I love that idea though that you're talking about. It's like, ah, oh, you're never gonna make it, and then you just bring up two of the biggest comedians of all time <laughs> who were <laughs> very political throughout their entire career. Uh, um, I mean, yeah, I feel like most comedians are very political. Like most yeah. comedians you listen to are extremely political. It's not like just just a couple of the greatest. I, I you think of any comedian, there's always things political in their in their acts. Well, yeah, and, and 90 to 95% of us are on the left. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, you know, as, as, uh, as I like to say, the truth has a liberal bias. Mm -hmm. um, it, is, it is our job to, you know, to take down what is wrong to, and to punch up. And typically, that is punching at the right. Because the you know the left is a, is much more of a the right is populist the left is popular and uh, we all know that the right can't really take too much of a joke. Um, <laughs> oh no, their their sense of humor. You know how you know they have a bad sense of humor? 
because they say something stupid and then they call it a joke. It shows <laughs> they don't even understand what a joke is. <laughs> There's no like, structure to it. It's just joking. like, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, like the, the idea of like, you telling a lie isn't a joke, sir. <laughs> it just means you lied. That's not what, you know, a joke requires setup or exaggeration, juxtaposition. There are all kinds of things that can make a joke, but just lying isn't one. And especially when you have to be told if it's a joke, it's probably not a joke. <laughs> if you, if you yeah, see someone, like, yeah, that's I not a joke. Like, I, I will say that is not limited to the right, because <laughs> if, if I tell someone a joke and they don't laugh, it's my fault. If they tell me a joke and I don't laugh, it's somehow still my fault. <laughs> I don't know why. It's not fair. But when you're, a, when you're a comic and they tell you a joke and you don't laugh, they're like, oh, you don't get it. It's like, no, I absolutely get it. And that's exactly why I did not laugh. <laughs> somehow it always has to come back to you. So I read, uh, I read your book, The Ginger Kid, Mostly True Tales from a Former Nerd. And one story I really just had to ask about. You talked about how you were bullied by a, a rapper um, whose name we will not say. But they, you said that they pulled a knife on you in the story of you getting the jacket back. Uh, is, that a, is that a true story? Yeah. Uh, everything in the book is a true story. Um, I have to say, for legal purposes, I have to say mostly true. Because, you know, uh, memory yeah. isn't perfect. Yeah. Memory isn't perfect. I'm sure that in the dialogue sections, I've gotten a couple words wrong here and there. Um, and also, you know, my editor, for time purposes, I had to condense a few of the stories into, you know, the actual book starts in seventh grade, even though it starts in ninth in the book. Like mm -hmm. some of those stories are from seventh and eighth because, you know, they just wanted it to start in high school. And I was like, all right, that's not a big deal. Shift the time on that a little bit. But aside from that, you know, it's all true. Yeah, uh, I was thinking that you had mostly true because some of the names were not for legal purposes. You oh, yeah, said, that's also. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of legal purposes, yeah. Because yeah, that, that can definitely come back. I know there's a bunch of people uh, put the name in a book and then all that money they get from the book goes right to the person they put the name <laughs> in the book for. Well, the... So so the, the only completely real name I used in it was Lin-Manuel Miranda because, you know, he's a celebrity and it's a complimentary story. So, it's, mm -hmm. you know, I think I'm pretty safe on that one. Um, <laughs> and then the first names that are accurate, because I couldn't change the first names because they had to do with stories, are Hope and Scarlet. Those are real first names because, you know, the, um, the joke about Hope's name uh, had to stay in, and also that story about Gone with the Wind and the frankly, Scarlet, I don't give a damn wouldn't really make sense if I was like, frankly, Samantha, I don't give a damn. You know? <laughs> um, going off the book too, and this story too. Um, you talk a lot about, and you're pretty transparent with the the bullying and rejection through your youth. Did you are you open about that in your book because? you kind of want other people to take stuff from it? Or are you trying to reach out to people in a way that's pretty just like, hey, here's, here's my story. Hopefully you can take something from this. Yeah, it's basically the book is hopefully you can learn from it, but not relate to it too much because I don't want mm -hmm. anyone to have also gone through that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's to be, to be honest, the, 
you know, I, I wanted to reach people with the book. My favorite review of it was um, one writer said, the only thing they don't like about it is that it wasn't around when they were in high school. And mm-hmm. that's what I wanted. I wanted I wanted to write the kind of book I would want to read at that time in my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I think I accomplished that. Are you the type of person that goes through and reads all the reviews for your book? Oh, I, I mean, you, you, you kind of have to. I mean, until, until you get to the point where there's too, just too much to see, like I don't read all the comments online, but the actual reviews of it, yes, because you also need to be in touch with how it was received. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, an artist is never responsible for how their work is received, but you're absolutely responsible for reacting to that reaction. And mm-hmm. so if I write this book and everybody universally hates it, I got to figure out why before I write another one. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, you're a huge baseball fan. Uh, how did baseball become a part of your life? Uh, baseball was part of my life as, you know, as young as I can remember. One of my earliest memories, the, the first time, you know, I say I was been, uh, I've been a baseball fan since I was four. Because that was the first time, like, I'm a Mets fan, and that was the first time I told someone to turn the Yankee game to the Mets game. <laughs> like, that was, I, was at a, I was at a friend's house, and I was in kindergarten, and I, I wanted him to put on the Mets instead of the Yankees. Because in my house, that's what we watched. Mm-hmm. You know, my house was a Mets house. And so, uh, you know, it was just something that my father was a huge baseball fan. Opening day in my house was the one time we were allowed to cut school. Um, you know, we had a kind of a tradition where we would go to opening day at Shea. And I grew up to, you know, bedtime stories of Jackie Robinson. And it was just mm-hmm. something that's always been a part of my life. And you said Shea. I mean, Shea was, was great. I loved going there. But, man, City Field is beautiful. It is such a nice oh, ballpark. Oh, Shea was garbage. Shea was garbage, but it was our garbage. <laughs> you didn't like you – I was going to say, you didn't like going to Shea. Like, just the experience of uh, – especially towards the end of Shea when uh, those 2006 team and stuff like that, like a couple years before it went away, it was a nice, it was nice to go in and just, you saw a winning team and the atmosphere was great because all the fans were coming out. And then when you found out that they were going to make a new one. I I think you're about 10 years back. It was, uh, it, it was, didn't city field come, come about like in the 2009. I think city. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, – look, I have some wonderful experiences at Shea. I was at the Grand Slam single. Um, you know, I, I, I saw four of Anthony Young's record-setting loss streak. Um, I've, you know, I, look, I've been to a lot of things at Shea, and like I said, it was our garbage, but it was still garbage. When you look back at it, you go, all the seats were different colors. That was so stupid. Every other stadium <laughs> – the seats are the colors of the team. You honor the team. You know, you make it a home field advantage. Instead, you know, like, it was just, why was orange, I mean, orange and blue, I get it. But then green and red, what, are you, what the hell are you doing? So, uh, it was, you know, those stupid neon, giant neon players on the outside, the, you know, a, probably loaded with asbestos. It was gross. Um, but... You know, and, and, and all the food choices of one hot dog stand. Um, City Field is a much better place to watch a ball game. City Field is a gorgeous stadium. Um, but I still did enjoy Shea. And, in fact, I own a pair of the seats 
when they demolished the stadium, I bought a pair of the red ones, which were, you know, the upper deck. And my brother has a pair of the orange ones. And when I saw that he had the orange ones, I was like, what are you doing? We never sat in those. Don't be a poser. <laughs> our seats were up top where you talk to God about how bad his nosebleed is. Like it was, our seats were garbage. And that's where we went because it was $6. I, I grew up a Yankee fan. Um, I'm from a little upstate New York, but I did love going to Shea. There are two of my favorite baseball moments were at Shea Stadium. One time I saw Mike Piazza almost punch out an umpire. And one time I saw Randy Johnson hit a little league home run in Chase Stadium. And it was, it was, first of all, it was bizarre because Randy Johnson was not a fast guy at all. No. But those were, those, I think that was 2003 or four. So it was right before the Mets really started coming back into themselves with the, the Delgado years with Jose Reyes and, and David Wright and all of them. And I remember, I think he hit a little dribbler yeah. over through first not backed up in the outfield so he's already on his way to third by the time he gets the ball throws the third bobbled goes into the outfield and randy johnson scores and everybody's like what just happened <laughs> that's randy johnson that shouldn't be happening yeah. yeah that's one of those things where you're just like okay Matt, stop being so many <laughs> um you said in your book that you coached softball for a little bit when you were in school did you ever have any desire to continue coaching um, I mean, you know, I, I, I coached at such an amateur level, you know, it was like, look, it was fun, but at the same time, there comes a certain point where the players will know way more than you, <laughs> you know, I, if you haven't, it, it's a weird thing. Like there are people who can coach really well that never played, but I think you have to play at a certain level to really understand what it is that you're doing and, and how to tell them to get better. Now, you know, I was coaching high school softball. And so a lot of what I was doing was just, and I tell the story in the book about how I taught them that stolen bases was a thing, you know, like that was not something that was done much in that league. And I was like, why not? No one has the arm in this league to throw you out, just go. <laughs> and so like that kind of stuff I could teach, but you know, you get to a certain point and, you know, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't coach a good high school baseball team because I couldn't teach them the drills that I didn't know how to do. Yeah, it, it's funny you say the stolen bases thing because Connor and I here actually coached high school baseball together, and we <laughs> would say the same thing. Like no one in no one here is going to throw you out. No one. Like just go. <laughs> just, <laughs> that kid behind the plate's got a noodle arm. We promise he's, he's not going to throw you out. And then they don't steal, and you're like, "Why didn't you steal?" Yeah. He's like, "Well, you didn't give me the sign. I just told you to just go. <laughs> I just <laughs> said, just go." Yeah. Uh, but I did love. Yeah, um, there was. There was uh, oh, I was going to say we had we had one team in our division, George Washington, which oof. you know that's where Manny Ramirez. Yeah, I know George Washington. Uh, yeah, and, you know, the softball team was really good. They were the one team in our division that, you know, we would always – the softball team, we would always either tie them for first, you know, uh, hit them in the playoffs, you know, whatever it was. Their baseball team was so much better than ours that there was a term in our division where we called it George Washington depth, and that was like the power hitter on another team, play him GW depth. Because that's who you have to – that's the depth you had to play when the pitcher came up. Yep. Yeah. Their team was we, – we played them in high school, and we had our best pitcher on the mound, or one of our best pitchers on the mound, 
and we were just like, you gotta throw him, you gotta throw junk because if you throw a fastball, he's gonna crush it. Well, he threw a fastball, and well, you you know the field, how the goal posts are in dead center. The kid hit it to the goal yeah. post in dead center on a fastball <laughs> from one of our best pitchers. We're like, yeah, they are a lot better. But also one of my favorite baseball stories I had came from there. We had a pitcher that wasn't that good, so he obviously came in a mop-up role when we were down 75. And uh, he came in, and he called – with his glove, called he was throwing a curveball, threw the curveball, and struck a kid out on George Washington. It was one of the greatest oh my <laughs> God. I've ever seen. I was like, are you kidding me? It's like how when you do rock, paper, scissors, and you're like, I'm going scissors, and then you do it, and they, they don't think you're going to do it. That's exactly what happened. He said yeah. curveball. The kid's like, there's no way this kid just told me he's throwing a curveball and he's going to do it. And he threw it, and he struck him out, and it was probably one of his only strikeouts because he wasn't really that good. Um, but it was one of those great stories against a team. I know all about George Washington. Yeah. They clobbered us when we played them. Not even close. Not even remotely yeah. close. Um, I did love uh, you said that you would shout stuff out. And you said uh, she has two strikes. She has to swing. And it worked at least once a game. Yeah. <laughs> it just oh, made me absolutely. die laughing. That was, that was so much fun to do. Just the idea of. And that's true in life. You go through life with way more confidence than other people. They just believe you. Mm-hmm. So, so doing that, because there's this split second, because there's no time between yelling that and her to look at the coach or, you know, et cetera. She just has to make that decision. She's like, what do I have to Okay, you know, and it's, uh, it was a fun thing to do. So you said you played one-on-one baseball with your, uh, with your brother. Was that like – I think you said it was more of like you'd hit it to the outfield, he'd catch it, you'd switch and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It was basically, you know, it wasn't about pitching. It was, you know, tossing it up and hitting it to whoever, you know, to whichever one of us was in the outfield. Um, and, you know, that's how I not only played with him, but I had a buddy that when I worked at a summer camp, um, that's what we would do. We would just, you know, every Saturday, we would just spend a couple hours doing that. And it was, uh, it was good, you know, really, really gave you a, a chance to, you know, get a jump on the ball and things like that. Um, you know, it, it didn't really help your hitting, but it absolutely helped with your fielding. And I got a chance to shag fly balls during batting practice for the uh, Columbus Clippers. And boy, was that different. Like the, <laughs> the idea of you know, anytime anyone ever calls a professional baseball player a scrub, shut up. You have no yeah. idea how good <laughs> the worst minor leaguer is. Like, these guys were the, – the way the ball would pick up speed as it came toward you was like nothing I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, usually – I was used to it, you know, you could judge it off the bat. It took a while for me to adjust. And I did actually catch both of them that were somewhat near me, which I was very happy about. But, boy, did I get the wrong jump on a lot of them. And, and don't forget the tailing of it as well. Like, when you're younger, you don't okay. realize that ball tails to the left or right like crazy. So you're like, oh, I got this easily. It's like, wait, it's going to the right. It's going to the right. <laughs> I need to go to the right. And especially the line drives. Yeah. You're like, oh, I yeah. got this. And then it line drives right over your head. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, oh, always, yeah, the, that's always fun. The, yeah, so, that was, uh, it was a really cool experience and one I would love to do again. And, you know, I think the more I do it, the more I would get a better sense of it. 
Um, but, you know, it definitely, like, the two I got were hit pretty close to right to me. <laughs> hey, but you still got them. You don't have to tell people that. You still got them, right? There, uh, there was one I was, I, uh, I got, I, you know, I, I went, I went uh, down on almost like half a knee for it, which was, uh, that one was pretty cool. But the, uh, yeah, but the other one was just kind of, uh, you know, right to me. Shagging fly balls was always one of my favorite things to do. Like I liked it more, like everyone like BP or that. I loved shagging fly balls, just being in the outfield, having the ball hit to you, you get to hear the crack of the bat. Oh my God. It's just, it's great. Everything about it's great. I wish kids did it more today. When we coached kids don't, kids don't go out and play just with themselves anymore. It's practice or it's go home. That's it. And it's really sad to see that. <laughs> it really is. Oh, there, there was a, uh, by the way, there was a game that I saw the Braves play in spring training that I cannot believe how into it they got. It was one of the coolest things I've seen. So we're at like a back practice field and uh, Kevin Seitzer was their hitting coach. Mm-hmm. And he he had this game. He called. I, I talked to him about it afterward. He called it his Oppo game. And basically, the way it works is he, only opposite field hits count, and it's basically one, two, three, and four points. And it's like opposite field single, double, triple, and home run. And we the the game we happen to watch of it, you know, and it's two on two. And uh, one of the Braves players, I'm blanking on his name now, but he was one who was a bit of a diva, but he was really into playing this game. And he was down by, you know, his team was down by three with one swing left to go. He hit an opposite field home run. They went nuts. The other team went nuts. Seitzer went nuts. The five of us watching went nuts. It was the coolest thing. It was like watching a bunch of kids who were passionate about the game play. And I asked Seitzer about it, and he's like, yeah, they love playing it. They asked me, because, you know, we only do four per day, like four players per day can play, and they asked me, like, oh, when do I get to play Oppo again? And it's such a, it's such a cool thing. I don't, know if, you know, I don't know if it's something you do with your kids or not, but I highly recommend it. We, we do something like that, um, not, not necessarily to the Oppo, but, like, you have to hit it to a certain field, and it's a certain amount of points, and it's the same thing. You have to – try to beat the other team in points. And then there's another one where you have to hit the back of the net. Can't hit the top. Can't hit the side. Has to hit the back of the net in the cage. That's like a winter game I try to get to get the kids involved more. Going in, into the winter and going inside, it just takes so much energy out of all your players. Like, they just don't want to be inside. It's hard to be in a cage for two hours and doing all those drills. So we try to do, like, back of the net stuff and stuff like that. But seeing, seeing like, that kind of passion for the game is just great because you just don't see it as much anymore. You really don't. And then major league players is even better because I, obviously they're passionate about yeah. the game, but if they're passionate about a game like that, they have more passion than even thought they had. It's great to see it, but it's really sad to see a lot of players don't want to really do anything outside of a scheduled practice anymore. It's really sad to see that. Yeah. Which is a shame because that is, you know, I never want to be one of those, these kids today guys, but you know, man, did I spend every every the second it was high forties outside. My brother and I were out there playing. Yeah, yeah, we played. We played when there was snow. We we just transferred. I mean, obviously, it's a little tough. We just transferred it to the street. Like it went from the backyard to the street in front of our houses. 
It was there was no stoppage, yeah. and it was funny because I saw the one-on-one baseball. The reason I wanted to ask the question is we used to play one-on-one baseball, but we did it a little differently. It was with a wiffle ball bat that we would t- kind of tape up so it didn't break, a tennis ball, and one person pitched, one person hit, and it was you know if you got the ball you can peg them for an out or pitcher's paradise and stuff like that. But we played like one-on-one oh, yeah. baseball. It was great. It was great, and that's why I wanted oh, to ask yeah, the question. Yeah, to me that's just a different game. That's just a version of stickball. Like yeah. we had, you know, growing up, growing up in New York City, I mean, our, our, our grade school had like the strike zones painted on the outside of it. Um, and, you know, it, it was for stickball. And whether it was stickball or we would do the taped of wiffle ball bat, uh, sometimes, you know, put some newspaper in it and cork it. Like that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, man, that, yeah, that was my childhood. We had one kid, there was one kid in the neighborhood that we all called Kirby Puckett. Because uh, this guy, I mean, he looked a little bit like him, and he had that kind of power. And it was it was one of these things where our elementary school was uh, four stories, and he once hit a foul ball, like, above him, over it. We're like, what the hell is that? Like, we, we, we never would have thought we would lose the ball in that sense. <laughs> Pop that it went over the dam, like onto the roof of the school. So we, uh, yeah, that was, that was a ton of fun. But, uh, I, you know, toot my own horn, but when I was in, in growing up, that was, that was me. I was the kid that would hit it onto the school. And then as curveball started to get introduced, it got a little tougher, but you know, straight ball, I hit good curveball bats are afraid. So Steve, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, up Steve. your butt, Joe Boo, as the TV, as the TV edit says. <laughs> Uh, with Steve Cohen taking over the Mets, how do you feel about that? I uh, I am very very excited that the ownership of the Mets has changed, and I say that as someone who worked for the Wilpons. I I think the smartest thing he did was just clean house. You don't see that all the time, but he's like, we're gonna just change up the entire environment. It's it's great to see someone come in for the Mets that like. You could tell he has a plan. He's not just going to go out and spend millions of dollars on everybody. He's going to have a plan. He's going to – they know what players they want to get and stuff like that. And it's just such a breath, breath of fresh air for, for the Mets that have been penny-pinching and, oh, we're going to get this – you know, they get Cano and Diaz, which was just a, a rough trade from the start. Um, it's nice to see a guy that looks like he has a plan. But, but, but no one – no, I thought that was a fantastic trade at the time because a lot of people were like, oh, they traded for Cano. And I'm like, no, they traded, traded for, Diaz. for Diaz. Yeah. And no one, no one knew, look, if Diaz was even a third of the pitcher he was in Seattle for New York, that would have been a steal. And, you know, last year he got a little bit back to normal. No one could – I don't know how anyone could have seen that coming. No, he just because when he first got to New York, he was he was fine, and then he kind of then he well kind of fell off. Then he fell off. It, yeah, they traded for Diaz, but sorry, I should have said it's become a trade that's been a little rough. Not that it was a trade because at yeah. the time it was a very good trade, but it's just become a little rough. Um, but the Cano thing, I mean, I, I hate to say it like this, but blessing in disguise for the Mets with with Cano right now because now they can kind of maneuver the way they want and not have to worry about your expensive second baseman. Um, oh, especially there. because one of their second basemen is playing left field, 
Yeah. And another, <laughs> you know, and another one of them is playing shortstop. So, you know, it was the team with four second basemen. You know, I mean, there's one that I think, you know, suited up for them twice. Um, I really thought Lowry was a good acquisition also. And, you know, nobody knew that he was made of paper mache. Yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, the idea of them having an astonishing number of second basemen, you know, and now they get to save $20 million while, you know, while moving either, you know, McNeil or, you know, I mean, over to, over to where they're supposed to be. And then with that $20 million, I mean, obviously he comes back off. I think he has three years left, so you only lose one of them. But now they can kind of look around and look at someone maybe like Trevor Bauer, who only wants one-year deals apparently. So there's things you could do with that money and yeah. things you could do with that space that, like, it, it's just – like I said, it, it's unfortunate for Cano. But, I mean, you, get, you got caught twice. You can't keep doing it. You know, you know what the penalties are. And it's going to help out move people around. And Stanisolol, I mean, the like the easiest thing to test for. That's, I mean, that's like getting caught for eating a sandwich because you ate a sandwich in front of the guy looking to see if you ate a sandwich. It's really <laughs> obvious. Uh, yeah, to uh, to kind of bring this all back together, uh, Steve. Uh, besides baseball, uh, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's, you know, coming up in comedy, someone that's interested in possibly pursuing it as a career? Well, not just comedy, but in life in general, no mm -hmm. one owes you anything. The mm -hmm. world does not owe you anything. And you have to realize that, like, look, pull yourself up by your bootstraps is a, is a stupid myth. People help you along the way. No one is success by themselves, mm -hmm. but also no one, is success, no one is a success predominantly because of other people. Your success will be determined by how hard you work. And if you want to talk about, oh, the industry is unfair. You know what? Yes, it is. Welcome to life. It is unfair. <laughs> put the work in. Mm -hmm. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. That was great. I feel like I, I could talk baseball all day, so this could have. <laughs> That's why getting, I'm here. I'm here to keep Chris on track. I was getting yelled at by producers like, hey, we got to wrap it up soon. I was like, <laughs> I can keep going. I love talking baseball. It's great. But thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back, guys. <laughs>